Hey up and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis. I am your host of the show. Thank you for listening. And today is the final episode of 2021. Antonia Cross is my guest. She is the Head of Marketing and Communications at Caring in Bristol, a charity that works with homeless people and does some amazing work in and around the Bristol area to help bring hope and light to people who are homeless around there. I met Antonia at a conference a couple of months ago, and it turns out that we had quite a lot in common. When she talks about marketing strategy, we talk about it in a very same way. Um, our outputs from strategic process are quite similar. Now, she tackles it slightly differently coming from a charity background, but it was really interesting watching her proposal where it, it just felt like she'd reached into my soul and, um, and been talking about strategy in the way that I do. So I thought, you know what? I need Antonia on the show. Um, thank you for listening in 2021. We started off this year with uh, Letty Galdon um, talking uh, A New Hope, that episode was called, because in season one I gave every episode a name, and I've run through a number of guests doing lots of different things this year. We will, of course, put out a roundup email between Christmas and New Year, so just in case you're missing me and my croaky voice today, um, then you can have a listen and charge up your podcasts while you're hiding in the office, catching up with some work, or just avoiding eating cheese with your friends and family. So whatever it is you're doing, I uh, hope you have a happy Christmas and a wonderful new year. And this episode with uh, Caring in Bristol and Antonia is coming up now. I do, at several points, make uh, appeals for you, if you can, to donate something to Caring in Bristol. And this is another one of those appeals. There's a link in the show notes. It's just below where you're listening or around it or somewhere. Find it. It takes, I reckon, about 30 seconds to donate. That's all it took for me. Um, using my phone, put the details in, handed some money over as a thank you for Antonia coming on the show. But if you can do, please do. I know lots of you do um, other charity work anyway, but uh, please do what you can. Anyway, here we are talking about marketing strategy with Antonia. And yeah, Merry Christmas. Antonia, welcome to the strategy sessions. Um, thank you for joining me. Do you want to explain who you are and what you're doing on the podcast? Well, I'm chuffed to be on the podcast. So who am I? I'm Antonia and um, I am the head of marketing communications for a regional homelessness charity called Caring in Bristol. I'm currently in Bristol. Uh, I'm in my living room in Easton, if anyone knows Bristol. And yeah, I feel, um, yeah, chuffed to be invited on, Andy. <laughs> well, listen, as um, lockdown backdrops go, yours is definitely in the top two or three that I've seen with some amazing artwork. If you're not watching the YouTube video, go and have a look at it now. Um, some amazing artwork behind you, which kind of puts my plant, which I can make look like Sideshow Bob, um, puts it to shame. So who's the artist or what's the, the stuff behind you? My housemate is a talented artist. Her name's Anna Higgy. You can actually look her up on Instagram. She is a she does all the illustrations for Vogue and stuff. And uh, during lockdown, she painted all of our friends and like us. Um, so that's wow. one of our friends. Um, so yeah, I'm surrounded by lots of art. But that is anyone who knows Bristol knows that Easton's a bit arty. So you, I've completely gone in with the stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> excellent stuff well look we'll put a link to uh, her instagram in the show notes so that we um that, that we don't miss that and anyone can click on the link so bristol is where we met i'm just going to very briefly tell a story of digital gaggle which is a marketing event run by noisy little monkey john and the team down there um i went over to to look at the event there were some great speakers on antonio was one of the ones I hadn't heard of before, which was fine. And to be honest, I looked and I was like, charity marketing, not really my thing. Um, but, you know, she's on a digital gaggle, I'll sit and watch. 
as always in these things, it's those bits where you're like, oh, should I go and make a few phone calls during this one? Where you are utterly, completely and totally blown away by somebody who just seems to be reaching into your soul or into your mind and ripping out all of its contents. The only thing I didn't really like, Antonia, it seems, thinks about strategy in it almost exactly the same way I do. The only thing I didn't like is that she sort of rolled out all my secrets that I charge clients for for free to the audience. I was like, what are you playing at? Um, so what, what, what are you doing trying to ruin my business, Antonia? Well, great. <laughs> great. I'm, um, I didn't mean to ruin people's business, but I kind of went into my talk being like, the way that I go to strategy, I literally wrote a list of like talks I'd seen before that I thought were a bit naff and was like, I'm going to do the opposite to them. And I just thought I'm going to be the talk that I wish I could go and see because I have sat through a many marketing talk and I always come out of it being like, I mean, it was great. Some, some of them were great, some of them were terrible, some of them were rotten but I was like I just want yeah I wanted to be the talk that I wish I could see and I was really keen I know a lot of people in like marketing have imposter syndrome or you find a lot of people who are self-taught and I guess you might talk a bit more about this but I really wanted to explain it so that anyone who watched that talk could go and then sit in their room sit in the office sit in the next meeting they're in and regurgitate something that I said in that talk and hold their head up high and be like, I know what I'm talking about because I'm saying I, I heard this girl use the right terminology or the model for like what I know I'm kind of doing or not. You know, I just that's who I had in mind is who was like I thought of my audience and they're people with imposter syndrome and uh, maybe people who haven't, you know, when they go into ring or when they go to meeting with someone like you is a bit intimidated. Um, maybe I was thinking a lot more of women. I just know a lot of men in marketing and then they're, you know, people know what they're saying and sometimes you can be in meetings and you feel like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, what I'm doing. And I just thought of that person in my head and I thought I want to give them the talk that they can go away from feeling like a puffed up chest. So that's exactly why I gave away all your secrets. <laughs> so, no, and, and look, it's, it's brilliant. So I think this top, this um, conversation is probably going to be full of lots of top tips um, because I think uh, I'm going to get the theme tune out already quite early on in the episode. So it's a T-O-P-T-I-P, T-O-P-T-I-P. I'm going to drop this top tip in for you, but it's such a blindingly simple one, which is think of your audience. See too many presentations at marketing conferences, <laughs> like not thinking of the audience at all, but what would I like to talk about instead of what do people want to hear? Uh, such a simple start to a, a great presentation, but it, it was it achieved those objectives, I think. Um, and I really enjoyed it. So when I, I looked at the, the branding house, which we'll talk about in a moment of how I put Eximo together, education is one of the pillars. And the underpinning concept that I have is, is keep it simple. Um, there's a lot of people in strategy try and complicate it because then they can charge more for it which look if that's what works for you that's fine but my whole ethos is to try and simplify it so people can understand it and i think that's what i saw with your presentation was you were like look here's how i did it here's how i broke it down and here's what you do if you're going to take it on to the next level which i thought was wonderful so do you want to talk about it a bit more about how the presentation came to life yeah so i had my idea my audience my imposter syndrome person and uh it came to light i've never done any talks on marketing before so uh claire dibbon who's amazing who's run of the noisy little monkey crew who uh puts together the whole event at digital gaggle she curates the talks and sources the speakers me and her had a couple of meetings together and she's been asking me for a while because she's always said that she found me i think she found me funny um and for a while she was saying, can you come and talk at Digital Gaggle? And I was like, you don't want to hear me speak. I don't know what I would speak about. 
And eventually she managed to find a time when I was free and she kind of, I just uh, gotten us through COVID and um, Caring at Bristol was quite successful in its fundraising throughout COVID. And um, I was very proud of the year that I'd had, uh, which sounds a bit crass compared to what was going on in the way to the world. And I think lots of people should be proud. So she asked me to speak on that. And she also kind of gave it a twist where it was how to do marketing on a budget. And I thought, well, I can speak about that because I've only ever done charity marketing. Um, I have had to be the most resourceful person ever, which has left <coughs> me meaning that I have to keep it very simple. I haven't got time to write a 2,000 page strategy, no less would anyone ever read it. So it would be pointless. <laughs> um, nope. And I just thought I could, do, I could talk about how to manage yourself through a crisis because I also am trained in crisis communications. So there was like a perfect axis of I can talk about how to market, how to adjust your Markham strategy throughout a crisis on a budget. And the talk effectively was like a countdown clock of what I did week by week to get us through the crisis, quote unquote. And I think it could be pretty easily cookie cutter, waitlisted, waitlisted for any crisis. And uh, yeah, I wanted to show people step by step, here's what I did one by one. And I counted it down but week by week. And um, I touched on everything from how to put together a strategy to uh, how to do your stakeholder management to a bit of crisis management mm -hmm. to then how to do brand infrastructure on a budget. Um, and I thought, crikey, like, are people just going to get so bored? Like, <laughs> I'm doing quite a lot, but even that, people are just going to think I'm nuts. Um, I have no idea how I managed to get it down to half an hour. I actually, truth be told, didn't really practice my talk. Um, I didn't let the noisy little monkey team know that. Um, that I'm so terrified about letting them down because I'm not very good at practicing those things. But I just said, I know what I want to speak about. And I ended it on a bit of a closer, um, a closing story um, where I made the audience cry. So clearly I did, it, some, I did something right or very wrong. <laughs> even a cold, dead heart like mine was touched by the story. So I, before, I want you to retell the story, if, if you don't mind. But what I... What we probably need you to do first is we need to go all the way back. So Caring It in Bristol is, as you said, a homeless charity working in Bristol. But do you just want to explain, sort of set the scene for what happened, what, what sorts of homeless charity you are, what, what services you offer, and what happened when COVID hit? Because um, that will then sort of set everything else in context for what comes next. Yes. So we are regional homeless charity. We run, um, we provide emergency support, so crisis support. So we had a shelter which uh, usually has 18 men in, in it every night and then we also do emergency accommodation for those under 25 um, we also do wraparound support for those people um, and we run the southwest's largest christmas homelessness project so that is like a day center for those experiencing rough sleeping and um, sometimes a night shelter um, but we also do prevention work as well so that's community liaison giving making sure people have knowledge of their housing rights and we always say that we bridge the gap between prevention and emergency support because we want to actually solve homelessness, not just kind of like a help tackle a symptom. Mm -hmm. um, and we also do a lot of campaigning work and work with our local councillors and MPs and, and um, a mayoral team to make sure that there's effective budget for that kind of thing. So we had a couple of unique challenges during COVID and that was that our clients are incredibly vulnerable um, they are more like stuff with chronic health conditions, not to mention um, how do you isolate when you don't have a home? 
Mm-hmm. And um, so they're extremely vulnerable to COVID and couldn't do any of the mitigating risks, uh, anything to help mitigate COVID, which was everyone else was locking down. Another thing that people didn't realize was that a lot of services for those who are rough sleeping are voluntary. So churches going out, community groups, you know, those kind of things that get people from day to day will run by volunteers who are isolating. So they lost a big safety net. And another challenge is uh, organizationally, we run using unrestricted income. So that's voluntary income. We don't have statutory income. So we don't take big, large grants from the council or from the government. We rely on people's amazing <coughs> donations of one pound to a hundred pounds um, because we believe that financial strategy allows us to be the most agile to the needs of our community. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I just jump in for a second there and say that if you want to donate to Caring in Bristol, this will be the first of several um, attempts to get you to do this. There's a link in the show notes. Click on it. it the, the website is brilliant. Uh, while Antonio was talking, I donated some money. It took me about 30 seconds to, to go from beginning to end. So please do, while you're listening, click on the link. It will make a massive difference to the work at Caring in Bristol. Sorry, you can carry on. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, it de- and it definitely will. So we had those challenges and people, we were worried about the the drop in people donating as a lot of organisations were and, and companies. It was like what it, it was like staring into the abyss, like what's going to happen with people's finances. We knew that people were going into, at this point, we didn't even know about furlough. I think it was just before then. So we had these challenges um, a, a, a very, like in front of us. And um, I worked out pretty quickly that we needed to have a bit of a stronger sail on our ship, um, to put it uh, uh, so. In a very Bristol terminology. Very Bristol terminology, <laughs> yeah. Um, what does that even mean, a stronger sail on the ship? As I was saying that, I was like, that's not even a phrase. I liked um, it, I, I liked it. Let, let's go with it, let's run with it. So I worked out pretty quickly that, and not to mention anyone who was in communications and marketing at the first week of March, second week of March, third week of March, it started becoming very pertinent who are we talking to? What are we, what are we getting out there? What are we doing? You know, it became, you became quite a linchpin in your organization for how you were like talking to your audiences or how you were navigating yourself externally. So we knew, I knew with a bit of like insight or I was becoming aware, a lot of charities, no less the bigger charities that have millions to spend, started to do emergency appeals, uh, trying to get attention for rightly so, for their vulnerable clients or for the people they were advocating for or for their services that were at risk, but also now under complete pressure. Um, So it became really apparent that I could not just send out an email saying, you know, emergency support needed. Um, So probably from from March the 1st to March the 20th, we also uh, created a new service. Those who were currently, those who were sleeping rough or in shelters, which were no longer available to be open because they didn't have places to isolate and had no sanitary uh, provisions for people to use independently. So we're completely un COVID safe. They all shut. So we put in Bristol about 400 people or 200, 200 people within two weeks, and then up to 400 people in hotels. This happened all over the country as part of an everyone in scheme. So we set up, but those hotels have no provision to feed people. So we set up something called Cheers Drive, which is a frizzle phrase, within uh, within 10 days, uh, which got food from restaurants um, and served those three, three meals a day to those who were staying in the hotels. So we also then had another weight of financial need. Yeah. Um, so I had to do something pretty uh, like bowls. And yeah, I, but it was... So 
my strategy i don't know where do you want me to start i always want to read no, no, the talk no. somewhat yeah so. but look I, I think what's amazing there is i think back to that time myself and i I didn't do anything, right? First of all, I thought it might be over in about six weeks. So I was like, ah, oh, don't worry, I don't need to do much. But secondly, looking back, it, it whacked me really, really hard. I got stuck um, in England instead of being able to get back to Ireland. And it took me over a week to be able to get home because all the flights were cancelled. And lots of other things happened in and around that time. And I, I was kept away from my daughter for a couple of weeks. And, you know, there, there was a fear around it and everything started to sort of fall apart. And all, I remember now looking back, I didn't help anybody. I just tried my best to, to help myself get through it, which was a, a situation I think a lot of people are in. So when I heard your story of how um, this sort of crisis started coming and, and you went to war, I mean, I, I went into hiding, you went to war. I was like, this is amazing. I mean, it's great resilience, not just you. I mean, the whole organization as well um, was an amazing story. So you got into a place where you're firefighting. There's lots of things changing. Every day the news brought something new and different, right? But you're at the same time going, well, all our money comes from donations. How do we keep the lights on? Because everything else is starting to gum up a little bit in the system. Um, so what were your, what was your approach to that initially? So I went back to, um, in our, I've always had a pretty kind of clear strategy, strategic aims. And I said these to anyone who was, you're going to read them out. Um, I said these to absolutely any, everyone at the, I said these aims to every, the three main aims. I'm going to have to start that again. That's so, I, <laughs> so I started off with going back to our strategy. I'm very aware that strategy is quite daunting for people. So I made our strategy really regurgitatable so that everyone in our organization knows what it is. And I have three clear aims for our marketing and communications function. And one is that I can read it out because um, I have them stuck everywhere. Amen to keeping it simple, right? I love this. Yeah. So there's three main aims. And I think if you don't have any three main aims, I want people to just borrow these because I think they're pretty, they're pretty good. So the first one is the right people know, remember, and connect with Caring in Bristol and then take meaningful action on its behalf. Number two is that Caring in Bristol's voice is clear, compelling, credible, and consistent at all points of contact. And the third one is that Caring in Bristol's communications are sustainable. So I thought I need to just make sure those things remain going. Obviously, an output of the, an outcome of those three outputs is 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 income generation. Mm -hmm. So um, they were really they were really personal that we kept those things up. Um, but it was like, how do I manage? How do I just do those aims? Um, it's like when everything that I usually do to kind of keep to those three aims has been kind of wiped away. I had some initial kind of outputs that I was doing for like press, digital brand and marketing that were going to feed into all of those three aims of the year. But loads of them just got wiped off the face of the earth. So instead, what I did was. So we have an emergent strategy and um, I'd like to maybe just explain that for a bit. So I'm being really reductionist and I know that that's uh, <laughs> there's going to be purists out there who are going to tell me that I'm completely being too reductive. But. When push comes to shove, it's good to just be really simple. So in my eyes, there are kind of two main streams of strategy, a deliberate one and an emergent one. And a deliberate one being that you have considered outputs that are kind of, um, I kind of described it as if you, if you run a green grocers, a deliberate strategy and you, and you want more money. So you run a green grocers and you want your green grocers to make more money. 
a deliberate strategy is that you want people to come in and buy more than they necessarily need or wanted to, and you will make more money. AKA you are then going to put fruit in bundles. So people don't just buy one banana. They have to buy banana, apple and orange, or people don't just, you sell bananas in bunches rather than as a single. So and that will make you more money. And then emergent strategy is I run a green grocers and I want the green grocers to make more money. Um, but I'm going to do that by being the most inviting, uh, accessible green grocers on the street. And then people love me so much that they will come to my shop more and uh, spend more money and I'll make more money. But in there's really, I don't think that there's a better one than the other one. I really wanted to make that clear when I was talking to people. Different courses, different horses, different organizations need different things. There are pros and cons of both. Maybe within your organization, you might have some things that are deliberate and some things that are emergent. You know, that's completely fine. Um, but we have an emergent communicate marketing communication strategy for our organization. I believe that made us quite agile and flexible. And I do... But I do believe that is one of the reasons why we were able to kind of like, thrive. you know, there were some aspects in our communications mm -hmm. that thrived for the past year. And it's because nothing could knock it off course because we knew that we had our three main aims. And then I came up with what I call the pillars of response. So uh, I had my strategy and that week I said, I did a bit of research and I effectively asked our volunteer. We have a very good mailing list of about 6,000 volunteers and very engaged individuals. I just went out to them and I said, how do you, how would you like a local charity to act? And I also asked people on Instagram and Twitter. And I just asked within our organization, I said, what do you, what do you think we'd do? And I got back some similar themes mm -hmm. and um, effectively the aspirational themes were to be active, responsive, bold and relevant. And there was a slight competitive strategy to that. And maybe this was slightly callous. I knew that I knew that some people were going to not be able to be as active and bold and responsive and relevant. And that was just the nature of the beast. And so that is no discredit to the amazing work mm -hmm. that they do. But I knew that if we were having to make, you know, we were going to have to fundraise in a competitive environment, it might look advantageous for us for, to, to, to kind of stick to those pillars. So I'd done my kind of bit of qualitative research. Um, I'd kind of siphoned it down to, you know, talking to our staff about it. So I then had my three aims with my pillars of response. And I thought, I just need to make sure that anything I do is active, responsive, bold and relevant and everything I do meets those aims. And I think, it, so what you've probably got at the minute is people who um, maybe signed up to the podcast when JP Caston was on a couple of weeks ago. And JP works in strategy with, with huge companies. Um, and you mentioned one, one thing, I think, where he sort of, added on tens of millions of dollars of shareholder value to buy, buy some work that buy some work that they've done which is fantastic and people who kind of operate in that world are probably sort of screaming into their handset or their computer at the minute going sending out an email to six six thousand people and questions on on instagram is not research but the reality is when you're working with low budgets you don't have the option of running, and when you're working in a crisis on a quick turnaround, you don't have the option of commissioning some research, waiting three months for it to be done. You've got to work with the tools that you have, don't you? And that, that's one of the key things of what you were saying was, but you're aware, I think the key thing was you were aware of the limitations. You knew you were asking a very biased group in some way because it was a group of fans and supporters, staff, and your social followers. But as long as you're aware of that and you don't over-extrapolate the, the results, that's fine. You need a quick temperature test. You got a quick temperature test. That's what you needed. 
Look, it, it you know, it, it might it won't stand up to marketing research rigor, but what it does stand up to is, uh, you know, a tiny bit of direction when you need, and if you need a port in a storm. And a lot of the people that I work with are dealing with budgets of 10 grand and under. Yeah. And and a lot of people that I work with don't have professional marketing experience. And I'm not sure that's what was needed in that instance. And I think there is, I, I would love to, to go away and have done focus groups and, you know, lots of qualitative data and quantitative analysis of, the, the, of what I already have from our kind of database. And that's mm-hmm. fine. But I think that what, yeah, there's times and place and within, if you need something within a week, that's going to help shape the way that you communicate yep. with that fan base. Um, so I wasn't looking for much acquisition. I was just looking for how do I keep the people, how do I retain the people that already love us? If I was, you know, if I was maybe going out for mass acquisition, maybe I'd have had to do a bit more, but effectively we need to communicate to about 6,000 donors, supporters, and volunteers, and we wanted to make sure that they knew that we were there for them and our clients. And yeah, best to just ask them. And I think it's really important that people know that even those tiny little touches of insight mm-hmm. are better than me just sitting on my hands. Definitely. And tell us, because there, there was some really interesting stuff in the presentation about how the, re- I think it was the relevant pillar that you used and, and how you turned that around to be relevant to your audience. And I think there's a little bit of that coming to your introduction at the beginning of the podcast as well. So we, we both relevant because this is actually before COVID hit. We um, I'm very keen on researching brand drivers. So I think when people, particularly when you're on a budget, um, brand can be quite a daunting word uh, because you think brand identity uh, or and brand awareness, mm-hmm. and you think one, how am I going to have a cool identity when I can't, you know, even pay to get a logo, or is a brand just a logo? And two, brand awareness, how am I going to be, you know, so-and-so Pepsi when they've got, you know, when they're spending millions in the area. So I find those two big, they're two big assumptions and um, things that people are scared about when you're a one-man band in an organization mm-hmm. that turns over around 20 to what, 500 grand. So you've got a very, I'm talking to those people and brand drivers are, Effectively, rather than your brand awareness, you would obviously kind of question your focus groups about whether or not they can conflate you or mis, you know, misinterpret you as another brand or what, you know, would I be able to recognize that brand without any information about them? They're the kind mm-hmm. of things that you would maybe look for in a very reductive way. The brand drivers is more like, why would you pick us? And they're quite important. So working in homelessness, when you kind of do a brand awareness, a bit of brand awareness research about what a homelessness charity does, it's very easy to complete us with other organizations. You know, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to help the same group of people in certain similar ways. And to, and to be completely honest, we don't want to be doing anything too much different. We know what helps our clients. And yeah. I hope there's a lot of, you know, consistency going on a lot of, across the board and there has to be solve homelessness. So we found that when we just tried to do a brand awareness strategy that we could be quite competitive, it sometimes was drifting us away from actually this is what we do. So brand drivers, when I ask people, like, why would you pick us? Most people came back, especially when we're in a regional market. We have several other homelessness action groups, both small, both large. We've got some nationals in there that are all fundraising and talking to the same group of quite small donor pool, really. Um, 
people chose said that they would pick us because of how relevant we are. So we get crisis and shelter who have who are amazing. I really respect. I think they're brilliant. But they they don't they don't have stuff in Bristol. The crisis doesn't work in Bristol. They spend millions of pounds fundraising Bristol. And so I was constantly thinking, fuck, how do, how the hell does my ten and a half grand Christmas appeal budget match their hundred grand regional budget? You know, and you know when they're saying when they're doing a similar thing to us. So we just had to make ourselves the most relevant. And my my pitch to the team was my pitch to the digital gaggle audience was when you know what what works for you, when you know what your brand driver is, don't be shy. You know they have that audience has given you the gift of how you can look better than anyone else. And so I just make everything the most relevant, and I really. Of someone once saw so our Christmas appeal video just name drops a lot of stuff in Bristol as constant signifiers. If you're a Bristol person, you think, God, this is really Bristol. And someone said that our Christmas appeal video reminded them of when you find your name in like a tourist thing, you know, when you get like pens and pencils <laughs> yep. or like magnets and stamps and they've got like your name on and you just feel so chuffed to see your name. Your name's spelt slightly different than the norm and my name is completely not the norm so <laughs> I, I never, I never found find any, it I never no. got my name in the tourist thing but that's someone said that that's what our appeal video like made them feel like and I was like see that's relevance yeah. so you you played the video and the video is in the show notes there will be a link in the show notes I'm just writing it down I'm not ignoring your promise and um the one thing that I took away from it was it, it didn't mean a huge amount to me but that, that was perfect because I'm not, that was my first time in Bristol. Um, I didn't know the places you mentioned. I didn't recognize the landmarks. I'd literally got off a flight, got the bus in and walked into the event. So it, it meant nothing to me. But that was perfect, right? Because you're not trying to be for everyone. You're not trying to fundraise in Belfast or in Liverpool. You're trying to fundraise to people from Bristol about being good for, for Bristol, right? So it, it was perfect. You were relevant to that audience. And that's what I re was really struck by was how you'd taken the strategy, come up with the brand drivers from that, and then implemented it in a really, really unique way. But in a way that you could have explained to a seven-year-old, this is what I've done, this is why that, and that's why that looks like that. And everybody just went... Of course, which I, I've learned over the years when people go, of course, that means you've nailed it with the strategy. I used to think that people, you know, when people said, oh, that's really obvious. I used to take that as an insult. I was like, excuse me, I brought my magnificent brain in here. How dare you say that's obvious? And now I'm like, no, th th this is it, isn't it? When people go, yes, I get it. Bing, that's when you've ticked the box and you know you've nailed it. And I, I think why... And again, my other thing is when you're on a budget, so you've not got much resource, it can be really easy to think of the big wide world that haven't heard about you and try and sing and dance for that big wide world and you neglect the people who do know about you. And I've just, I've learned, I've made, I made that mistake in the past. I used to be really acquisition focused. And when you've got not much money, it's, it's not, and I appreciate that that is better for other people, you know, different companies and, you know, being acquisition minded is, you know, you have to give and take and it has to be a part of that. But yeah. I worked out that retention was the best strategy for us always and um, had the best value for money. And at the end of the day, we're taking donations off people to market ourselves. I can't be just throwing money away because I really want people to notice me that I'm never going to care. Yeah. Um, and I kind of taken that a bit of political science as well, because um, I remember, you know, do you remember the Corbyn years? Yes. Used, I got really wrapped up into it. Of course, I'm Bristol. This is a podcast. But I remembered like hearing a political podcast and it was about um, rallies. 
mm-hmm. you know when you go to a rally and you go to like a Jeremy Corbyn rally and you're at Glastonbury and he's oh, on the main stage yeah. and you think god this guy's gonna win and he's not gonna win he's gonna win by a fucking just, landslide it's, it's gonna just, be like the biggest election win in history yeah but he's not he's just preaching to the right room everyone outside of the rooms never doesn't give a shit about the bloke never heard of him don't like him when they do hear about it they're like so I think you want to find your rally you, you and you and our rally is people who are in Bristol if I if caring in Bristol held a rally in Bristol everyone would be singing and oh caring in Bristol it would be very good outside of Bristol no one cares yeah. you know and certain certain parts of Bristol no one cares and I have done my time where I've tried to market to those people to get them to care about us and I still do and there's that but there's a different route but I feel like if you're low on resources, find your rally crowd, find your oh Jeremy Corbyn's, like, because they will love you. Can you give you us know? the Caring in Bristol song again, please? <laughs> oh, Caring in Bristol. There we go. If you're not if you're not singing along to this, you're heartless already. Oh, Caring in Bristol. I, I think I did that for a while. And I think it'd be really easy to try and, yeah, I... I think in, in an organisation... Yeah, you do. And I think when you, when you look at the figures in your organisation, I'm not going to ask you to share, share them, but you start to become aware of, of your different times, aren't you, in the organisational's life cycle. Sometimes you maybe you can take longer bets and think, right, we can maybe try and recruit some new customers. Other times you just know you need to hit a revenue number because if you don't, the lights go off and the doors shut. And at that point, you just have to go deep with the people you know. So it's all about that's part of the strategy where you're looking around to see what the, the landscape looks like before you decide where you're going to go. And, and what you've seen is we need to go narrow and deep with the people who who we know and who know us. I mean, saying that, though, I'm about to say what I then did during COVID. <laughs> All right, go on, then. tell us that. Bit, then. So I'm a hypocrite. I'm, I'm going to edit this, oh. but you made me look like a right muppet. No, 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 but I, <laughs> I make myself look like a right tosser. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I then, so I then to try and thwart the whole fact that I knew there was going to be massive competition for people's donations, and I think everyone was aware if you're a, if you're kind of in a certain amount or you're in a certain target audience, I'm sure you saw all of the. I'm sure you got peppered with lots of emergency appeals and charities, and that's you know because they need your support. Um, so I did a publicity so within three weeks using my pillars of responsive, bold, active, relevant, using my communications aims, marketing aims, and knowing what I needed, knowing what my goals were, and that was more unrestricted income and letting our clients know that we're still available and there. Mm-hmm. And because of lots of charities were closing, we were getting lots of emails from supporters going, are you closed, are you closed? So I, those cha- I needed to tell people we were still active, make sure our clients knew we were still active and there was support for them and raise money. So I put on a publicity stunt where I took over about, I think 2000 billboards, something. I took over all the billboards for one company in Bristol, a company that we've got a long-standing relationship with. And this is a bit of brand infrastructure because I, always this company's called out of hand and they're brilliant and i'm happy to speak about them because they're fantastic they do art like arts appeals um kind of like arts and community uh boards all over bristol they rang me up the first week of um the first week like second week of march saying we've lost all of our trade because they do a lot of stuff for festivals mm-hmm. and I was, I was like what Tell me what, and I knew I had to do something bold, and my, the light bulb in my head went ding, 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 ding. I said to them, I was like, tell me what we can pay you to keep you afloat for the next two months or next three months. I said, you and one staff member, 
he said five thousand pounds i said i'll pay five thousand pounds but i want all your billboards for two months he was like deal um so we spent five thousand seven hundred and seventy five pounds on a on an appeal that became a publicity stunt that made 65 grand in two to three weeks so we took over all of them the posters and the best thing about them was it was a clickbait so everyone who I tried talking to was like, why are you doing outdoor marketing? Why are you doing outdoor? Why, why are you doing outdoor marketing when everyone's indoors? No one's indoors. And I kept thinking, well, our clients are. And anytime I heard that from someone, it kind of gave me more like spirit, like that I was doing the right thing. I was like, yeah. our clients are still out there. So the campaign said, just because you're safe indoors doesn't mean everyone is. Well, our posters are still on the streets because um, as long as our clients are. So it had like a couple of angles. And then because people were walking to Tesco's on their one daily walk and their one daily exercise and taking just photos of these billboards saying it was really strong. Yeah. Um, but loads of people told me that was a terrible idea. Um, have, all you, men, have you got a page fine. we can link to to show people this campaign? I, I can, yes, I will send that to you. I'll cool. show you some Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. But I, I think that the, there is this element sometimes where you know you've just got to back yourself and there is maybe something about you've got to take in other people's views and opinions but sometimes if something feels right there's a bloody mindedness you need isn't there of just being like do you know what i just got to go for this um and and the, the execution sounds fantastic and the way it brought to life and the way it communicated that position also you know the number of digital marketers who keep telling me outdoors dead and doesn't work I'm like mm, are you sure about that People still, it has, the, it has the largest legacy of one of our appeals. We still get, we still get people emailing us now being like, love those posters. Yeah. And that was when everyone was shut indoors. Honestly, I had, I had a, yeah, I had someone, I had a quite patronizing man tell me, tell me it was a terrible idea. And I was just like, yeah. Do you still, do you drop him a, a weekly text message, you know, with a, an emoji of a duck and an off afterwards or something like that? He sent me an email saying, very well done. I thought that's enough for me. I'll, I'll feed <laughs> So there's, there's two interesting things that you've mentioned that like you skipped over in your presentation and you're likely to skip over now unless I, I bring them, hold you to account on them. And I, well, they're, they're kind of two elements of the same thing. I and mean, it's the value of building the arc before it starts raining, right? And what I mean by that is you mentioned about your 6,000 active email subscribers. You didn't start building that list when COVID hit. That's a long-term plan to build that sort of list. And not only to have it, but to keep them engaged and to get the right messages to them and to talk to them. You know, the billboard infrastructure company probably put that phone call out to a number of people, but only the ones who they knew well enough to ring and go, we're fucked. And mm. can we work together to help? Now, that's because over time, you've built a relationship with them where they felt comfortable to be able to do that. That's an underrated skill, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, it's not making the right calls once. And I don't want to kind of overplay strategy and how difficult it can be, but that's about making the right calls over and over again over a period of time that you've done to get you into that position where all of those those things are ready. You know, all the ducks are in a row because at the moment you needed them, you'd done all the spade work in the last two, three, four years. I think that's, um, you know, people go, oh, it was lucky that that happened. There was no luck in that, right? This is years of hard work got you to this position. Well, I'm a big sucker for sending thank you cards to people. I give that as my tip. That's one of my t- 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 <laughs> Okay, let's hold on, hold on, hold on. We've got a yeah, T-O-P-T-I-P. T-O-P-T-I-P. <laughs> go. Send thank you cards to absolutely everyone who does anything for you. I send thank you cards like the clappers. And I also 
always turn up to meetings with a box of chocolates. I, and I and I things have fallen in my favour. <laughs> Don't want to say. <laughs> do you remember like whose name do you remember? She's just a chocolate girl, but yes, her. Ring her. Ring that girl. Yeah. Really big at making contacts. Really, really important, especially in a regional environment, especially if you're on a budget. And I'm not saying on a budget that you can ask people for free favours. Is another thing that I've never done. I always try to take caring in Bristol as a charity from being needy to be needed. The thing is a real, that's like a long-term strategy I have. So we always pay creatives and a fair rate that, the, that they ask. Uh, so a lot of what I've been, if you see me do like a creative marketing appeal, you best believe I have paid that videographer, that illustrator, that everyone, they have been sent a thank you card. They have been honored as a freelancer. So I really, and it has paid dividends because then those people usually go away and spread the good word about us. But we've then always had favors and come naturally out of it in a more kind of like a different way. But brilliant. So one of the things I kind of mentioned in the initial digital gaggle talk was people think brand is just identity. It can be very easy to be fooled when you're on a budget and you feel overwhelmed that brand is just identity. And I talked about brand infrastructure, which actually has been. There's an academic called Chris Chapleo. I've never heard anyone else say his name out loud. So it's either Chapleo or Chapleo. And I feel like someone listening to the podcast is going to correct me. And I hope that they do. But it's C-H-A-P-L-E-O. And this person does amazing stuff. Um, really brilliant uh, marketing um, academic. And he came up with a way to monitor your brand infrastructure. And I adapted it for Caring in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like... You know, do you have appropriate budgets? Do your senior leadership team know what know how to describe brand? You know, it's a risk if they if your if your director thinks brand is your logo, then that is a risk that you need to work on your branding strategy. Do you have team buy-in? Do you have integrated marketing infrastructure? Do you have um, evaluation methods? Do you have a professional experience in marketing or qualifications? And that's not to say that you don't need them to start off initially but maybe that's being your strategy that you get some or even if it's just a short course in something like you need to be mm-hmm. building that knowledge so I kind of have this grid of things that I rate us on and they've gone into my brand strategy and it's all about its infrastructure and loads of those things are free you know teaching your senior leadership team that brand isn't just logo in it in fact it's like the aggregate weight of everything that you're externally putting out in the world that help people understand you and your you know is beyond identity it's beyond just regurgitating values i think brand infrastructure is yeah processes in place at every step of the way that you are monitoring and evaluating to lead you to a certain direction and i was really chuffed to be able to say that that's actually one of the things that people after the talk mainly came up to me about that i had changed their opinion on brand i was like god that's cool um because i just thought (laughs) someone else's idea so (laughs) listen great artists and all that so yeah and look i think what you what you did with that, and we'll get a link to to that in the show notes as well, but it was a really, we probably don't have the time to dissect it in, in properly, but it was a really interesting way of just flagging up where your potential concerns might be and giving you a direction to go and solve those problems before they become bigger problems. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was really useful. And like you said, when, you, when you're on massive budgets, you bring a consultant to sort that out. What you sometimes you've just got to play you've got to play every um instrument in the orchestra and this was a really nice easy way um, but also robust as well of, of being able to pull all that together um so let's fast forward a little bit towards the sort of 
you, you hit the campaign that got you 65 grand from a five grand investment. What, what, looking back, what was the overall kind of COVID pandemic like from a fundraising perspective, not from a you know, personal perspective and how it impacted the clients, but from a fundraising and marketing perspective, what was the overall picture? From a fundraising perspective, it was really tricky. You know, it, I, we had, you know, what was it? it was a really volatile external environment with little means to be able to plan. So usually if you're being quite strategic with your fundraising, you can target people based on the, um, their like, uh, so not their income, but their, their expenditure. Mm -hmm. And how do you monitor, you know, that we had some people who had more, you know, some people who were sat at home and had more money to give. Uh, certain audiences that usually neglected, like maybe people in their twenties, were really tired. You know, were actually were donating more than they ever have done. But then it was also, but at the same time, you had another cohort of people in their twenties who were completely stripped of any job autonomy, you know, freedom. And it was just, it was because it was so disparate, and how people experienced it was hard to target the usual audiences that you that were you that had been traditionally considered maybe fundraising bread and butter. Um, that and then there's maybe ethical questions about who you might want to consider targeting. Maybe you're being completely inclusive or exclusive. And mm -hmm. I think it became a pretty, you know, exclusive environment. You know, there were lots of people who just really didn't have that means. So I think there was, yeah, I know a lot of charities really struggled statutory income so say that you usually go with grants or trusts say that you usually get um fundraising from the government like where is that going to go is that going to be siphoned somewhere else grants and trusts did quite well um we had quite a good environment in 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 the uk of big grant funders who were private grants uh, being more loose with funds funds than they had been previously so yeah. kind of fast tracking donations that was quite good but it was a really tricky environment and we had to ask, I had to kind of look inside myself a lot the entire way. Um, yeah, like kind of it really threw up in the air a lot of the usual stuff that I'd done. And I think maybe that's a good thing because, you know, how dare I get complacent about who's going to donate to us? Like that's, it, like it's, it's, an, it, it's an insult. So maybe, I think what's happened is the past year as I've, I've certainly scratched that. And I think that maybe is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, which seems like a perfect jumping off point to remind everyone that there is a link in the show notes <laughs> to donate to Caring in Bristol. Um, any amount from a quid, a tenner, 20, whatever you can afford, um, please do try and donate. And if you've got a local charity as well, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, if you've got local charities helping homeless people, find them, chuck some money their way if you can. It does make a big, big difference. Um, back to the, to the interview, you uh, had some really simple tips for making strategy stick across an organization so first of all simplify right we you know we often try and make this sound grand and and you know people you people hear the word strategy and they think either complicated or expensive and there's people in my job who do this um, and want to make it sound complicated and expensive so they can charge more I've said that before but you simplify it but what was your top tip about making it stick in terms of in your organization or what was your T-O-P-T-I-P. Three yes. times in one episode. Oh, yeah. Are you going to sing it with me this time, actually? Antonio? I can't. I'm not quite getting the cadence right, and I really, I think I'm ruining it. It doesn't matter. We'll give it a go anyway. T-O-P-T-I-P. Yes. There we go. Right. We get 
I cool. sorry, uh, go on. My, <laughs> my top tip, and I'm actually I'm showing people on YouTube, but for people on podcast, I actually just I have it on one page, and I very clearly relate it to our vision, mission, and values. That's the that's a key thing. Really related to the overall vision and strategic objectives, and I stick it everywhere. I've made it look pretty, but I have these all over the walls of our offices. So I have the one page where it's really easily broken down. And then the back page, which I stick somewhere, which is kind of just a written thing, which has some clear outputs for the year on it. But this has been pretty good. God bless you. (laughs) Honestly, I love this. I love it. So I, I, for years, I've been saying at, at conferences in various places that my the difference between the companies I see doing marketing well and the companies who I see do it badly is the ones who do it well have a calendar printed out and stuck on the wall. Often they're a photocopier saying, this is what we're doing. And it just creates accountability and it jibes questions and people go, oh, that thing, can we? And it generates sparks of conversations and, and off you go. So when you said that, I was like, she is reading my mind. What is going on here? Um, and where, where did you pick that up from? Or is it, was it, is it just one of those it's bloody common sense? I have no idea where I put that from. I just did that on gut instinct. So I'm trying to work out if I if I nicked it. Usually I would see it. Usually I'm a bit of a magpie of ideas, as all good people yeah, do not absolutely, yeah. do. And I don't. I never saw that. I made that because all the strategies I'd seen were just long booklets. And I remember I had never done. I had never written a marketing strategy before. For, before a couple of years before like five years ago or something and I remember mm-hmm. when I was first getting into the world of like marketing work uh kind of inputting into someone else doing a marketing strategy you know as you start your career you're the person who feeds into it and I remember just thinking it was all a bit naff and I remember like seeing a strategy, <laughs> I remember seeing a strategy for a charity that I worked with years ago and flicking through it like 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 I could read it on the loom or something and just think god this is so long and it actually made me overwhelmed this is why I talk about people with imposter syndrome. I remember looking at that thinking, God, I'll never be able to put something that long together. I've not got the attention span. So um, I... But no, nobody I, has. That's the thing, isn't it? Once you work that out, it's like, who cares? Who wants and this? I, what I had to do is I had to be really clear at Caring Bristol. Sometimes in charities, there's a real, like, partisan divide between uh, those who work frontline and those who work in the back office. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I just can't have it that I, if I had to do a marketing strategy for this organization, that it's only the one mer- person marketing me sees it and none of the staff that are asking me brilliant questions and are holding me to account don't have a clue what I'm doing. I, so I, I was like, I'm going to write a marketing strategy that absolutely everyone in our office, cleaner to frontline worker to support worker, who are all much smarter than me and brilliant. I can assure you of that. I've seen the work that they do with our clients that I would never be able to do to our director I was like, I, I want it so that everyone can go, that's our current strategy. So I, I made it pretty close, but actually it's very clear. <laughs> and another thing I had to do is it was very clear in a charity. Sometimes it can feel really easy to think that marketing communications is like added on extra, maybe a bit like HR in other organizations. Yeah, it's a bolt on sits on the edge. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I can't do that. I need to show that everything is like integrated. We're all going towards the same vision. You know, we can't create, our vision is a city empowered to solve homelessness. We can't create a city empowered to solve homelessness without all of those pieces. So I really yeah. wanted to show in a pyramid that every that, that marketing communications isn't just to make us look pretty and isn't just to get us funding and actually all the other stuff for solving homelessness is all the good stuff. I want to show like we can't solve homelessness without that. So I had to really make it clear. 
so that you know we had questions from people in our amazing youth team who would say you know facebook can almost seem a bit like why are we doing that you know we've got clients to help out i thought well yeah. it really is part of the puzzle we can't create a system to empower self homelessness about it so that's where that came from and right. yeah such a simple tip and like genuinely go and take it away back to your organization right take your marketing strategy and if it doesn't fit onto one page you need to rewrite it right and um hey i have a course for that if you want to buy it only 249 euros linking up but uh, seriously there, there is lots of ways um of creating a one-page strategy or a shortened version of your strategy get that stick it up on the walls and get people to buy into it if you're worried what people are going to say about it then you've done that process wrong as well. It's a kind of co-creation. It's, it's not just marketing, writing in and saving any organization. Going, Look at what we've created. Isn't this wonderful? It's not like that. And if it is like that, you're doing it wrong. It would be my Another opinion. thing I see, it'd be interesting to see if you see this. I'm about to say something now and you might be like, I've never seen that. Then I've just manifested it. Is people getting strategy and plans mixed up? Yes. So, All like, the time. All the time. Okay, thank God. I was like, maybe I'm about to say something. <laughs> like, I don't know who you're talking to. But, and I, I see this a lot with, with smaller organisations who are new to putting together a marketing strategy. I think you put a plan there. I was like, you do not need a yearly calendar where you are writing down every month what you're doing. That comes after you've worked out your strategy. So you yeah. know what your aims are and you know what your pillars are. And then maybe you need to do like, a, here's what we're doing every year. But like, So I, is- I spend a lot of time... Uh, just explaining terminology as I see it to clients when I start working them, the difference between strategy, tactics, and planning. Um, and in fact, there's even slides in presentations that I've done at Brighton SEO where I exp- just at the beginning of the presentation, because sometimes when you talk strategy to some people, that means like um, mission and vision is, mm. is marketing strategy. Some people think it's a marketing plan. Some people genuinely have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds important and it's some, they've got a senior job title, so they were told to turn up. So, uh, you know, I talk about the difference between strategy uh, being where you're going, tactics being how you're going to get there, and the plan being kind of the strategy, the tactics, and the calendar put together to show you what you're going to do. But you're right, that the calendar, I, it's actually, I use a thing called tutable because I couldn't find a better... Um, uh, <laughs> I couldn't find a better acronym for it. But basically, it, it's not necessarily saying, right, in January we'll do this, February we'll do this, because things change, emergent strategy, right? Things I, move around. I really struggle with that. I'm always asked uh, by people, what are we doing in, in this time? And I'm like, well, that's not quite how we do it here, because we're matter, more emergent. Yeah. I tend to give us themes, and I know what we need to do at different parts of the year, because that's what our audience wants. Yeah. Which is why uh, you were reaching into my head and reaching into my soul I and actually, it out have a quote for you so I'm glad that I could bring this up so I keep sketchbooks uh, people who know me I I find it really struggle to work on lined paper and as soon yep. as I worked that out my world opened up for years I tried to cram myself into this person who wore shirts and worked on lined paper and it just turned out I, I don't and Not I you. felt like <laughs> I was a bad person for years and then all of a sudden I started using sketchbooks and wearing earrings that I liked and I was like why am I now better at things um <laughs> I found an old sketchbook and I write in here like stuff that that gives me inspiration for work and I work in okay and it's just a quote that says strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory and tactics without strategy is the noise before the defeat and I've Excellent. just written that ominously in a sketchbook <laughs> when did you write that down so that that's a quote from Sun Tzu I think I think um, it is Sun Tzu, yeah, because yeah, I always say Sun Tzu, that I was like, take people in the direction and they're not expecting it. Yes. And that, but it, it's, and I, I have a, um, an, an irritation, because 
strategists position themselves, and it comes back to what you were talking about with deliberate strategy, and that has a history that comes out of the US military into General Motors and people like that around the, the post-First World War. And strategists were, maybe even the, the, the etymology of the world is like the word, sorry, is like leader of the army from Greek. So it's all about leadership. Some modern marketing strategists and business strategists are like, we're the smart people in here. We charge you the big fees. We tell you what to do. And then you minions go off and do it. But if it's not ever brought to life by the tactics and by people delivering on the strategy, all you've done is got a really, 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 really expensive piece of paper that means nothing. It means fuck all. And also so both things have to work together. If there's a crisis and there's people running around doing headless chickens, I hope that doesn't happen for people's organisations. I hope everyone's more calm. But it does. But you should be <laughs> able to stand on your own conviction in a meeting when you're advocating for your marketing department and know what you're actually doing. So I think, like, if you're going, oh, sorry, I can't talk to you about that now. I need to go and remind myself of the strategy. You should be able to have courage in your conviction in every room that you're a representative in that you know what you're talking about or at least pretend to be and I feel like I always found like when I had a big tome like strategy and other people that I couldn't accurately do that for people and I think that's not what people need not of me and the role that I play in my organization anyway maybe there's other organizations where that that really serves a purpose and I god bless those people it, I mean, in what four and a half years of running this company and probably three or four years previously, and we, we did deliver some weighty, weighty strategies because when we first started, we thought that was, was a good way to justify the fee. Um, all I know about those 70 plus page strategies, nobody ever read them and nobody ever implemented them. Um, and now the strategies are shorter, punchier, more direct, um, are implemented have results and it's like, oh this is great so th there maybe is a place for a huge long marketing strategy but i would doubt it maybe business strategy i don't do that so much so i don't know but it's certainly a marketing strategy if anyone starts telling me it's more than 10 pages i'm like why uh and i know um, pages is a really bad metric but you know it's just what we're talking about i helped a kind of write our organizational strategy as well and i changed its name from a strategy to blueprint because our brand is blue I remember feeling uh, really smart. Uh, <laughs> well, you've impressed me again, yeah, Antonio. <laughs> and it's really cool and interactive. And because we also had a name in our organization where we didn't want a charity like organizational strategy that none of our staff picked up. So, mm. yeah, we made it really inviting and it's called The Blueprint. And I remember thinking, Blueprint, like our brand is blue. It's about buildings. Yeah. It's, and Blueprint literally mm. means plan to be followed. Yeah. And I remember feeling like really clever for about two weeks. I'm really glad that I brought this up. <laughs> ah, listen, hey, do you know what? I'd be, I'd be feeling clever forever. I'd, I'd have built a whole um, conference presentation around that. Why you should call your strategy a blueprint by Andy Jarvis of XML Marketing. And I, I, listen, I'd have rinsed that for two years. Never mind two weeks. Go for it. Own it, girl. Own it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm glad that I've managed to bring one of my sketchbooks. So yeah, this people yeah, who excellent. can't see this know that I've. this is a very average me being in a meeting it's quite a visual person so it's, it's different learning styles and, and we could rant forever about the, the failures of the education system i mean there's a lot right with the education system but there is a one size fits all like you say lined paper and and order is the way to go it's not for everybody right and and you've shown that too mm -hmm. yeah, thanks. but 
while you are um, gloating in changing your organization's business strategy to to a blueprint, let, let's just bring it back down with a crash landing into talk to us about when something's gone wrong. You talked about how maybe you focused on the wrong audiences. And when, when, we're doing this lovingly, obviously. So we don't want to know what you got wrong is almost irrelevant. It's what you learned from that and, and what you've jumped on. So tell us about some monumental cock up that you've made at some point. Well, first of all, I made all the cock ups. I make a mistake once, but I don't make it twice. And if I do make it twice, then I just leave. CV's going up. Yeah, don't tell anyone. But I have one, actually, this is a good question because I have a big cock up. And it was kind of talking about um, in our charity being quite disparate with uh, frontline workers, is what uh, you know people call them, people who are working, with our, people who are working directly with our clients, and then our back office staff, our marketing communications. And there was a real kind of like disparate, need and a big cock up that I made was making an assumption why that was without fucking talking to anyone the assumption I made for a while was they just don't understand what I'm doing which was probably a bit ego filled or mm -hmm. like I don't know who I thought I was but it was like oh, they just don't understand what marketing is in the concept of the charity or like I you know that you know how dare they question my <laughs> need to be in my, my massive brain bringing bringing yeah. this here I mean, how dare you question yeah. me oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll rue the day that they didn't know <laughs> what, why i was tweeting that shit meme um so i that was a big cock-up i did and and i then what i did was i tried to then i made several routes to try and bridge that gap based on that assumption so then all the routes were wrong so I kind of, what I did was I tried like doing like talks with people about like marketing and people just sat there going, this girl telling us why she's tweeting stuff. And actually when I talked to people, it, it wasn't that. What it turned out was, is that because I was so in and out, what I was doing is I was parachuting in and out to teams and just pissing people off. So people weren't ever like getting to know me or getting to know what I was doing. And that's when I kind of recreated our organizational internal communication to be like integrated marketing so mm -hmm. instead of just having a marketing function where I'm like people kind of funnel information to me and I'm kind of sat on the outside what I did is I hired a member of staff who then sat individually with each of those team members with each of those different projects so they felt like they had a marketing person in their project and then each project got its own marketing plan which they co-created with me and yeah. they told me what their audiences were. We did their audience management. So it wasn't me going, here's what you need to do. It was that team. So then we had a shared language about what their marketing needs were. And that's kind of how I, yeah, created integrated marketing within our organization. But yeah, that was a big cock up. I've, I've done other things as well. I did um, loads of cock ups. I've also kind of, uh, do you know about like orientation theory? It's a thing that's mainly in charity marketing. And maybe when it comes to direct marketing and fundraising, conflating a bit. No, let, so, let, let go for it though. It sounds great. Yeah. So um, they, when people, when you have an audience that's in a certain orientation, so this happens kind of, I'm sure this does happen in corporate, but I couldn't think of a direct link. Someone, someone would have to tell the podcast. Um, so you get people who are in, interested in charities for different reasons. Maybe you get like a, someone who just volunteers and then you get someone who just wants to sign all of the petitions, ring down the houses, do all the door knocking. So they're in a campaigning orientation. And we've got volunteering orientation. We've got a fundraising orientation. That is someone who is just really happy and chuffed to give their five pound a month. So that's their brilliant stake in the world. All of those brilliant stuff is doing, all of that stuff is doing great. When you get them crossed, so I guess this is just about better audience management. 
but like mm-hmm. creating a fundraising campaign that goes out to the people who are just there to sign petitions. It goes down like a fucking lead balloon. And I and there can be something about what I've done before is I we had an appeal that didn't do so well because what it did is it spoke, it was like a really campaigning appeal. It was all about how um, we really need, uh, it was all about uh, they were going to stop the ban on evictions. Mm-hmm. And I sent it out to our fundraising mailing list and it fucking was like a damn squid. And those are people who were just like, why you, we've told you that we don't like this. So I guess it's not orientation theory is, is the fancy name for just don't, don't get your audiences wrong. And I've done stuff like that before, because yeah. again, you can make the mistake of not fit, not being audience minded, not being person centered. And instead, just because something's right for you or you think it looks cool. I thought it looked so cool as well. We did it in such a cool way. And I was really proud of how creative it looked. So I, and that was, that was only last year. You know, yep. it's really hard to, which is why it's good to have marketing research and insight and why you always need to do your audit and analysis and evaluation. But tell you what, doing an evaluation, a critical evaluation of something that's gone wrong is such a good dose of medicine. Yep. And, I, and, and I did, I went away after that film and I did a critical evaluation. Uh, of it I literally wrote up a report and my god I've read it more than I've read anything else I've done yeah. and I sent it around yeah. to the other members of the team and I just thought it's yeah it's good yeah it's it's interesting so I know um, I know I think I should say and I know is a little bit strong that in software development they have pre-mortems rather than post-mortems where before they launch, they go through like what's everything that could go wrong in, on on this project you know, I, I think when you're doing big software installations that have kind of beginning, middles and ends, it, it's maybe easier to drop one of them. I mean, trying to do a pre-mortem on every campaign you did might be a bit of a disaster, but I said that there's a lot to be learned, whether you do pre or post in work, in sitting down and looking at your mistakes and, and learning, which is why we have this whole section on on the podcast. So there's another top tip there. I'm not having I mean, you're sick of the theme tune by now, um, but I'll, I'll go on. I'll give you one more time. T-O-P-T-I-P. Yes. Um, just... <laughs> critically evaluated they're really really useful things to do now we are approaching the the last lap of the podcast so i need to fire two questions at you that everybody gets in fact no three question two possibly three um we'll see how you answer the second one so firstly is books podcast newsletters any resources that you recommend people dive into we've got the uh, the one about monitoring uh, brand infrastructure and stuff but what else would you recommend so I don't listen to any marketing podcasts uh, apart from this one, but I did. Shit. I have got some books. I actually have got some books that I can recommend, and I've got them here. So I read them out. So I've got the Good Guide to Campaigning and Influencing by the okay. NCVO, and that's by Brian Lamb. And this Brian Lamb, I've met him, and I did some a course of him, and he teaches you all about theory of change campaigning. And okay. anyone who's into campaigning and creating campaign strategies, but it really ties in quite well with how you could also plan or influence marketing strategies effectively behavior influence strategy amazing and i refer to this a lot and my second one is i really like chat people who are really into charity marketing charity marketing delivering income services and campaigns by ian bruce this ian bruce is the godfather of charity marketing I've that also looks Bruce. like it's got lots of little uh, post-its in it and thumb marks and bookmarks and it, yeah, so brilliant. Love it. So Bruce, uh, Bruce is the man. And he wears really cool glasses. I can test. I really liked Whatever You Think, Think the Opposite by Paul Arden. It's a Saatchi gallery book. And yeah. it has a story in there about the difference between being a reckless Erica and steady Eddie. 
So a steady right. Eddie is like someone who just goes and goes up and yeah, they leave uni and then they get a good job and they stay in the job and they stay in it and they always just get a bit up. But at the end of their life, they've not done anything too momentous. That's cool. But reckless therapy goes up and they go down, they go up and they go down. At the end of their life, they look and they've had some real peaks. Yeah. I think anytime I have like a bit of a trough, I'm like, I'm just a reckless Erica. I'll peak again. So I really like that. But it's quite good for strategy, I guess. I know that's slightly off piece, but I really like that. No, listen, somebody, somebody took in an Otterlingi cookbook in one of these at one point. So that is not off piece, not even slightly. So when is Charles Handy, the second curve? Have, has yeah. anyone ever brought this to you before? Because no, never even heard of it. on reinventing society. But it's, if you are a strategist, I cannot like tell you enough. I think he's an original, he's a philosopher and a strategist. And yeah. he has a story in there about the second curve is basically a concept, which is actually a strategic concept of how you should, you should always re-strategize before you hit the peak, because then you'll hit another peak. But if you hit the peak and carry on going, you'll just go down. So yeah. the second curve is the concept of you will create another curve. Is and it called the, the Sig, Sigmund curve? Is that, I think, it, well, a sigmoid curve is actually the name of the posh mathematical thing for That's it. the mathematical term for the curve yeah. that he's talking about. The sigmoid so the sigmoid curve, curve is, is one where it always goes down. I don't know, the, but he's, trans, he's called it the second curve. And I yeah. really recommend, yes, it's about reinventing society, but strategists, I think that that's really important to remember to do. If it's There's, going well, you still need to be strategized at some point. There's a couple of people on the podcast who have had reading lists that have been like a lot of the time it's it's very similar books and many of them are on the shelf over there. And there's a couple of guests who've come up with like banging reading lists. And this is you're right in the mix with the top two or three people with like the best reading lists ever. So is there any others? This is this is great. Yes, I've got two more and then I'll stop. Go on and keep going, keep going, because New Power by Henry Timms and Jeremy Heinrichs. Now I was recommended this. There's a lot in here about ad car model for change. So there's a lot in here about campaign. Yeah. Again, really recommend this to marketers. Um, one of the reasons why I recommend this to marketers is because there's a brilliant story in there about how um, he, says, he said there's two different types of worlds. There's, there's Minecraft and there's Tetris. He says people who do Tetris, they come in and they slot themselves on top of people or they slot, they try and slot their strategy on top of people or their idea on top of people just to kind of like, and then they kind of overcrowd them with Tetris block. Mm -hmm. He says, you don't want to be that. He says, you want to be like Minecraft. You want to go into the world and create things with people. Because it, I've, I've actually never played Minecraft. But okay. apparently Not me, me yeah. you help create the world of Minecraft. So you don't just play it. Yeah. You kind of like go in and create yeah. your own scenes in it. And I thought that, I just feel like that's actually quite a good marketing yeah. Like, Do you know, I've never used that analogy before, but um, you, again, get out of my head, please, because that, yeah, <laughs> it, it's bang on. Um, and then I have one more recommend if anyone is ever doing fundraising and maybe I actually really recommend this to people to marketers because I think fundraisers can be seen as these kind of like twee kind of like bucket waivers. And actually yeah. they are really brilliant marketing communications and PR strategists and they are just as their, their ability to get in ROI on nothing is actually so impressive and he um ken burnett relationship fundraising by ken burnett i think it's some people pronounce it ken burnett i don't know who's right and who's wrong and i'm probably wrong but this book changed my life i'm from yorkshire antonia it's ken burnett and that's it that's the last word there's nobody else's words important i said ken burnett in a meeting and someone was like it's ken burnett and i was like oh my god oh my god <laughs> i'm always saying something wrong it's ken so, burnett. anyway so sorry you said it changed your life it changed my life, yeah, because I just, for ages I used to 
fraught the word fundraiser for a bit. I used to be, kind of shrug away from it because I've done a lot of fundraising. I just think I'm not a fundraiser, I'm a marketer. And this kind of made me reclaim that power a bit. And I really recommend people who aren't into fundraising, actually, fundraisers are quite a good source of knowledge. If you want to turn £10,000 into £2 million, you're looking at fundraisers. You know, they're very good. That, that's alchemy. <laughs> that's what that that's, is. And, and they're not selling anything but hope yeah. and dreams. Like, I mean, many more. Many marketers can take two million quid and make it into ten thousand, um, which is itself a scam. I hope. I hope that I've said that. I don't. And then my final thing is, I really recommend anyone who does creative marketing. So I, I've always had a subscription to Vogue, and right. I am just saying, like, be a magpie of knowledge. I literally carry around sketchbooks. I see advertisements in. You know, if you want to look at advertising, you know, you don't need to. You don't need to sign up to the drum. I still don't have a drum subscription. I wish I did. I don't have enough money. But I do have a subscription to Vogue. I should probably get the drum. But you, all the best advertising is in there. Yep. You, if you want to see adverts, look at your local magazines. And I just and they're so creative and they know their audience. And yep. yes. And, I'm going to start calling you Grandma Antonia because you've recommended magazines and billboards as part of this um, thing. And yeah. you know, there'll, be, there'll be people in the 20s going, what is this pensioner talking about? I don't even I know. know how to spell magazines. Um, as I, I was at an Go on, sorry. My kind of thing with magazines is like, you are given like free creative energy all around, well not free, you know, a couple of quid. And yeah. I just honestly really can't recommend, like I'm going to be really old now, scrapbooking, I'm always tearing stuff out of pages, I've still got inspiration. I just, people, when when I do my best creative work, it's because I've sourced, I still kind of source those ideas, like a scrapbook or like a I, I, again, get out of my head. I have a folder um, of, uh, now I keep mine digitally, but like if I read, um, like some old sales resources, for example. I mean, I've, there's different folders in there. There's marketing, sales, graphics. And if I see a great campaign, I'll take a link, put it on a Word document, save it in there so I can go back for inspiration. Um, there's probably a better way of doing it, but this works for me. But like, I, I got some sales um, advice from a guy from 19, I want to say something like 1913. Um, he was an American guy called... Emo Wheeler, I think his name is. And he's just like this classic American fella. I'll put the link in the in the show notes to the video of it. So he, you've heard the phrase, don't sell the, don't sell the sizzle, sell the sausage, um, which was popularized. I thought it was um, like a, a, a quote from the 50s or 60s advertising. It's not. It, this guy back in 1910 or 1913 or something, and he, he says, don't sell the sizzle, sell the steak. But he's also got four or five different um, tips for salespeople, which is from a TV show in, in America back then. And I, I watched it once and I was like, every one of these is absolutely perfectly relevant today. Um, and it was, you know, it's like they always give the, the, the prospect the chance, the option between something and something else and make the something else more expensive. So they might trade up, never just give them the option of one thing because then their option is buy that or leave. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Um, I like just you know, five points I of great wisdom. I think the oldies are the besties. All of yeah. the books, I've, all the books on charity marketing that I that I've read and I've really valued. This is why in my digital gaggle, I've, I've, I've related back to like original models or like academics. Yeah, you know, I I you can if it's on an if you found a cool Instagram, that's cool. But like there, are, if it's worked for a hundred years and it's still working. Ta-da! <laughs> no need to reinvent the wheel here. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so brilliant. Well, listen, my my possibly last question, possibly penultimate question, is what one question we expect to me to ask that I haven't? 
Oh, that's an interesting one. I, I kind of touched on this actually. Someone asked me this digital gaggle. Um, and uh, I usually, if I do a talk on homelessness, usually someone asks me about, should I give money to people I see on the streets? Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a, an answer for that, and that is you do whatever you want to do in that moment. Excellent. I love that. Now, that would have been a perfect place to end the interview, but I realised that there's an even more perfecter place to end this interview. So what we're going to do is a very different ending. I usually waffle and talk shit at the end and trying to make a real bad wrap-up. But instead, I'm going to hand over the reins to you and let you finish this episode. What I want you to do, because you mentioned it right at the beginning or early, is you had a story that you told, and it was a lovely story. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to put my microphone on mute in case I start blubbing like I did last time. And when you finish talking, just say goodbye and wave, and I'll stop the recording there. Okay, Antonia, the floor so, is yours. It was all about, do you know what, you can strategy, you can have all the best marketing tips in the world. You know, you can have all your strategy, you can have your aims, you can have everything and you can feel like you're glossing through things. And I really hope that for you. But when push comes to shove, and you're having a terrible day at work and you have, you know, your back is against the wall and you're exhausted. You need a reason to keep on going. This happens a lot when you're on a budget or in the middle of a crisis. And I just want to share with the podcast what my reason is. So uh, Caring in Bristol run the Southwest's largest rough sleepers uh, Christmas project. We have a day centre where people come and it's a bit bittersweet because the bitterness is that people have nowhere else to go. So they're kind of like spending their Christmas with you. And so, but the sweetness is there's raucous laughter. People have full bellies. And also you get to see people year on year, which is actually sometimes quite sad but actually at the same time it's you get to check in on people know they're okay and in 2017 and 18 I had my Christmas lunch next to a guy called Mike who was raucously funny and really good at cryptic crosswords and we uh, just laughed about the food and you know took the mick out of Christmas together and when 2019 came he just wasn't there and I looked around the shelter for the ages and I'd actually got my hopes up to see him and he just wasn't there. And do you know what? My heart just dropped. And I just thought, oh God, usually when a client doesn't turn up, um, it's because they, you know, some harm has come to them or, you know, they're, they're poorly, whatever. Um, so Mike spends, as a bit of context, he was, he was a rough sleeper who lived in Lee Woods. It's a woods just in Bristol. And he had an encampment there. And it's really common for people who are sleeping rough to actually come to a Christmas uh, or a winter project to seek sanctuary from the cold. So when, when someone doesn't come in for that, that sanctuary, you think, what has happened to them? And I was gutted. And then in 2020, again, we did a reduced service and I was asking around for him. Um, sometimes people know each other. I asked the referral partners, have anyone seen him? No one has seen him. Oh God, and I just really, you know, it's just really gutting. And I just really felt like something had happened to him. Then four weeks ago, I was walking through Broadmead, which is uh, Crystal's High Street. And I saw someone who looks like Mike, was clean shaven and was wearing flash clothes and was holding hands with a woman and looked really happy. And my God, it was fucking Mike. <laughs> and we just like walked past each other. This actually happened outside of Boots. And we kind of looked at each other and I knew it was Mike and he recognised me, he just tipped his hat and walked on. And I just said, my reason for being, for doing my job is when RX clients ignore me in the street because they are like so over their experience. And I just, that, I think about that anytime I'm just, like 
when push comes to shove at work, I think about more clients ignoring me and I just think, thank God that's going to happen. Brilliant. Listen, Antonia, thank you very much for that. It's been wonderful. And yeah, donate. It's in the show notes, right? Just click the link, give some money if you can. Thank you very much for your time.